0: Welcome to Family History Mysteries, a podcast that tells the stories uncovered through family history research, the unexpected stories of everyday people. I am an avid family historian who has been compiling my family tree for over 15 years, with nearly 20,000 people collectively recorded in my trees. Episode 7 is titled The Convict. This story is about Hannah Williams, who is my husband's fifth great-grandmother. And it tells a very detailed story of Hannah. I endeavour to support all my entries on my family trees with official documentation, but with Hannah there are some gaps and it allows sometimes to put some assumptions in place. I'll ensure that you're aware when these assumptions are made. I was quite excited in looking into Hannah Williams's life and who she was connected to as it really tells the story of the First Fleet and the beginnings from 1788 onwards and also in Tasmania with the development of the northern part of the colony of Van Diemen's Land now known as Tasmania. Hannah Williams was born on the 29th of September 1773 in Carmarthenshire, Wales to David Williams and Martha Thomas. On the 14th of August 1800 at the age of 27, She was convicted in the court of the County of Carmarthen on suspicion of felony, breaking and entering, of the dwelling of Sarah Jenkins and stealing two handkerchiefs and one flannel apron. She was sentenced to seven years' transportation on the Nile. She departed Wales on June 1801 and arrived in New South Wales on the 14th of December, 1801. Soon after arriving in the colony of New South Wales, she met a man named Michael Murphy. I'm going to give you a little bit of background of Michael Murphy, and then I will talk about where their life led once they met each other. Michael Murphy was born in Wexford, Ireland on the 26th of September, 1761. His parents were Francis and Eleanor Murphy. He entered a career in the Royal Navy. For his time, he was relatively tall, five foot eight inches. He was described as thin-faced and of dark complexion, with grey eyes and dark brown hair. He was about 18 years of age when he enlisted in the Portsmouth Marines as a private on the 3rd of July 1779. For a man of his time, an illiterate Irishman, he led a life of astonishing adventures and played a small part in a number of world-changing events. Between 1780 and 1783, He saw service in the West Indies as part of the American War of Independence, where the sun and heat and colour must have seemed as far removed from the mists of Ireland as it was possible to be. In 1785, he was back in Britain, serving on the Portsmouth guardship Ardent. He was a private from the 41st Company when he joined HMS Sirius at Portsmouth on the 24th of February 1787 as part of the ship's marine complement. Also on board was Samuel King from the 50th Company, who was to become a dear friend of Michael's. The captain of this ship was Captain Arthur Phillip. The British government had begun assembling what would become known as the First Fleet at the beginning of 1787. The Sirius was one of two naval ships, the other being the Supply. Michael assisted on the Sirius as a Marine. The assembled fleet set sail at dawn on a pleasant Sunday morning, on the 13th of May 1787, after many delays, travelling through Tenerife in the Canary Islands, where they broke their journey briefly to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, where they arrived on the 4th of August, a journey of a total of 12 weeks. After a month at anchor, they reprovisioned the ships and collected various seeds and plants for food crops in the new colony. They departed for Cape Town and the Cape of Good Hope. They arrived in October, and again spent a month resting and taking fresh food and water on board, as well as further useful plant materials. They set out on their final long leg of the journey on the 12th of November, and reached their destination some 11 weeks later. The ships arriving between the 19th and the 23rd of January 1788. They began offloading on the 26th of January, now celebrated as Australia Day. Michael's name features on the First Fleet Monument at Cook Park, Lausanne, Sydney. Later that year, on the 30th of August, Michael Murphy, Private Marine, was on board His Majesty's Ship the Sirius with Captain Arthur Phillip as the commander, and he made, declared and published his last will and testament in favour of his beloved friend Samuel King in the presence of John Hunter, Second Captain, and John Palmer, the purser. Michael was illiterate, so he signed with his mark. In October 1788, to alleviate acute food shortages in the new colony of New South Wales, a decision was made to send the Sirius, under the command of Captain Hunter, to the Cape of Good Hope, a journey around the world. In doing so, the Sirius was the second west to east rounding of Cape Horn, following Captain Cook and the first navigation in that direction from Australia. Murphy was one of 17 Marines who took part in this voyage. On the 5th of June, 1789, Michael was discharged from the ship's books to Port Jackson Detachment. He continued his service career, doing duty on board the Gorgon while he was in port from the 31st of October to the 11th of December 1791, joining the New South Wales Corps on the 6th of April 1792 and serving five years until April 1797. When signing on to the First Fleet, a volunteer was given an option after serving three years with a record of good behaviour. He could return to England or be given permission to settle and be placed on relief so as to enable him to become established. In 1792, Murphy was one of 84 First Fleeters who made the decision to remain in the colony. On the 6th of April, 1798, he received a land grant of 60 acres on the Georges River in the district of Bankstown at a rent of one shilling per year, commencing after five years. And eight months later, in January 1799, he and Stephen Gilbert shared a grant of 200 acres, also in the district of Bankstown, at a rent of two shillings per year, commencing after five years. This grant was subsequently cancelled when Lieutenant Matthew Flinders was granted 300 acres, on the 1st of January 1800, which included the Murphy-Gilbert land which he purchased from them. The land went to Flinders in the time between his circumnavigation of Van Diemen's land with George Bass and departure for England. A new century had dawned and Michael rejoined the Corps on the 6th of February, 1800, becoming a member of the 102nd Regiment and was transferred to the New South Wales Veteran Company. At this time, he was about 52 years of age. And this is at the time where he met Hannah Williams, it not known how when or where Michael Murphy and Hannah Williams actually met but it is assumed that their relationship began sometime shortly after she arrived in the colony. Michael was 12 years older than Hannah. Their first child Ellen or Eleanor was born about 1803 in Sydney and their second another daughter named Elizabeth in 1804 also in Sydney. The births of these girls are not registered until 1811 in Tasmania. So we are assuming that Murphy was their father and it is strengthened by the belief that his mother's name was also Eleanor. In 1803, a decision was made by Governor King to establish a settlement on the northern shores of Van Diemen's Land under the guidance of Colonel Patterson. Michael, as a member of the 102nd Regiment, was employed to assist alongside another 37 troops. They went on the Buffalo from Port Jackson to Port Dalrymple with 50 convicts from Norfolk Island, some animals and a few stores. Mrs Eliza Patterson was a passenger on the Lady Nelson, having come to join her husband, Colonel Patterson, and with her was her convict maid, Hannah Williams. They arrived in November 1804 at Outer Cove, which was later called Georgetown. Outer Cove was the original landing that was considered but it was unsuitable because of a lack of fresh water, and a site at the head of the western arm of the river was chosen instead for settlement. This was named Port Dalrymple, which was the name given to that area from the entrance of the Tamar River and to the yet-to-be-explored country along its banks. The Port Dalrymple settlement now numbered over 300 with the arrival of the Buffalo and the Lake Nelson. 12 months after their arrival in Van Diemen's land, Colonel Patterson wrote to Earl Camden Describing some of the difficulties they had encountered, and indicating that he considered these to be largely overcome. Some five free settlers also arrived on the Buffalo. Allotments were chosen and measured out, and everyone exerted themselves as much as possible. Unfortunately, many of the blocks proved to be unsuitable for cultivation. The lots on the hillsides produced poorly, and those on low ground were subject to flooding. Colonel Patterson recommended that as the first settlers, they be compensated for their losses by being granted better blocks on the banks of the Tamar River. Michael and Hannah had two more children, Mary in 1807 and Jane in 1909, both born at Port Dalrymple. It was quite common in the early days when ministers of religion were few and far between for couples to commence their life together until such time as it was possible to have their union formalized this was probably the case for Michael and Hannah. Reverend Knopwood made his first overland journey to Launceston in 1811. So on the 10th of March 1811, Michael Murphy and Hannah Williams, both of Launceston, Port Dalrymple, were married after bands, both signed with their mark, and the witnesses were Major Commandant G.A. Gordon, and it's indecipherable, first name not sure, but Kenny is the surname. On that day, their four daughters, Eleanor, Elizabeth, Mary and Jane, were baptised and also Eleanor and Elizabeth had their births recorded. There were two more children, a son, Michael, born 1812 and baptised at St John's, Launceston on the 13th of March 1814, and Maria, who was born on the 6th of June 1814, both were born at Port Dalrymple. By the end of 1813, Michael was given the job to oversee the evacuation of Norfolk Island. Norfolk Island twice served as a penal colony, the first time from March 1788 to February 1814. The colony of New South Wales transferred convicts that had been brought to Australia to the island. At first, the intent was to settle and develop the island. However, rough seas and the absence of good landing sites made it difficult to supply and sustain the colony. By 1812, a new penal colony had been established at Hobart Town in Van Diemen's Land and it had received its first convicts from Britain. Norfolk Island no longer served any purpose and the last settlers and convicts were removed by February 1814. As part of the New South Wales Veteran Company, he is recorded as serving back in New South Wales at Parramatta between 1814 and 1816 and he served at Emu Plains from 1819 to 1823. Even though there was a three-year gap in his tour of duty, he didn't seem to return to Hannah and his children in Tasmania, and nor did he bring them to New South Wales, and Michael Murphy did not ever return back to Tasmania to Hannah. Michael Murphy had served a total of 37 years and 321 days in the Marines and the New South Wales Corps, he is recorded as being given a land grant in 1822 at Liverpool, where he farmed 19 acres of wheat, one acre of potatoes, and he had one horse and 21 horned cattle. Michael died on the 10th of January 1823, aged 63, at Emu Plains, New South Wales, and was buried the following day at St Matthew's in Windsor. St Matthew's Church is the oldest church in Australia. It was built by convicts between 1817 and 1820. His death was recorded as M-I-C-H dot, so short for Michael Murphy, but it was later mistakenly transcribed as Arch Murphy, A-R-C-H, and eventually led the death to be registered as Archibald Murphy, which is how it appears in the records today. In 1814, while Michael is in Parramatta, still serving in the New South Wales Veteran Company, it seems that Hannah is now with Timothy Daly. Timothy Daly was employed to assist Michael and Hannah on their high mount property near Port Dalrymple, and when Michael left for Norfolk Island, it seems they became a couple. Timothy was born in Ireland. He was tried in January 1809 and was sentenced to life and arrived in Sydney in the same year. Timothy was then transferred on the Boyd to Port Dalrymple in 1810. Hannah was 14 years older than Timothy. Two children were known to locals as being Timothys, Anna, known as Anne, and Dennis, were born and baptised with the Daly name. Anna was born in Port Dalrymple on the 8th of September, 1817, and Dennis Bower-Daly on the 21st of August, 1819, at Port Dalrymple, when Hannah was 43 and 45 years old, respectively. In fact, the children were baptised twice, the first time under the names of Daly and Murphy, and later in the Roman Catholic Church under the name Daly. And Dennis Daly is the ancestor that my husband's connected to. In 1819, a general muster of land and stock shows that Timothy Daly leased 90 acres as a settler on the Norfolk Plains. It states he has two children and a servant. He was given a pardon in 1821. On March the 27th, 1828, it shows in his convict records that he was charged with assault for beating Hannah Murphy. Both parties were ordered to find sureties for their good behaviour. Hannah's charge was reprimanded for being disorderly. In eighteen twenty five he was given a land grant of one hundred acres, and by eighteen thirty two he had a total of three hundred and twenty acres at High Mound on the east side of North Esk River. By october eighteen thirty three he'd had purchased land at Patterson's Plains Road, which is now on the outskirts of Launceston and more on some of their convict misdemeanours. July 22nd, 1828, Hannah was found that she had assaulted Eliza Fitzhallen and broke her door and window of her house. Then on October 22nd, 1828, she was charged with being disorderly. And then on December the 13th, 1828, she was charged with assaulting and, and threatening to beat Hannah Bent. Timothy died in November, 1833. This is an article on the 26th of November, 1834. In the Supreme Court of Van Diemen's Land, in the matter of the probate of the last will and testament of Timothy Daly, late of Highmount, on the island of Van Diemen's Land, to the next kin of the said Timothy Daly decreed, and to all whom it may concern, This is to give notice that it is the intention of Hannah Murphy, Exectrix, named in and by the last will and testament of the above named Timothy Daly, bearing date of the 7th day of November, 1831, to make an application to His Honourable Court on Friday, the 18th of November instant, or to the Honourable Chief Justice of the Court in Chambers, as soon after as His Honour shall be pleased to appoint, and as counsel can be heard, and of which due notice will hereafter be given that a certain paper writing purporting to be a copy of the last will and testament of the said Timothy Daly deceased may be propounded and proved by her, the said Hannah Murphy, as and for the said last will and testament of the said Timothy Daly deceased, on the grounds that the said original last will and testament, which was soon after the execution thereof lodged, and left with the late Thomas Cookson Simpson, Esquire of Launceston, deceased, has been lost and cannot be found. This was dated on the 18th of November, 1834, by Daniel Sutton, who was the solicitor for the said Hannah Murphy. Then in October, 1837, the will was in question. Murphy versus Daly, Supreme Court of Van Diemen's Land, and this was in the Cornwall Chronicle, Launceston, This was an action directed to be brought before the jury by the Commissioners of the Caveat Board to decide a question that has been the subject of much litigation. The question to be decided is whether a paper purporting to be the copy of the will of the deceased Timothy Daly is genuine or not. Mr. A. Stephen for the plaintiff stated, there were three questions to be determined. The first, whether in fact it was his last will and testament, the second, whether it was, as by law required, attested, and third, whether this document is a real copy of an original will. The counsel concluded his speech by saying that if the jury were of opinion that the principal witness, Joseph Bond Clark, together with Quinn and King, have not perjured, for these can be no mistake, then they are bound to give a verdict for the plaintiff. Her claim has been advertised three times via the Gazette, no caveat put in, but it is merely for the satisfaction of the commissioners to ascertain the truth. The will left with Mr. Simpson, but could not be found after Mr. Simpson's death. Joseph Bond Clark sworn. I knew Timothy Daly, the deceased. I know Hannah Murphy since the latter end of 1830. Thomas Daly lived at Highmount, about two and a half miles from Launceston. The plaintiff lived with him as his wife for some time, She was called Mrs. Daly, and sometimes Mrs. Murphy. There were two children, which I have repeatedly heard him speak of as Mrs. Murphy is their mother. Mr. Daly and I were intimate acquaintances up to his death about four years ago. In the latter end of 1830, or the beginning of 1831, Daly was a licensed publican at Highmount, and at the end of 1831 he said he was very much indisposed from a fall he had had some time previously, and he should like to make his will, and would send for Wallace Turner to make it. I told him that I would do it as well as Turner, if he would explain his intentions. I told him to write down his intentions. He wished particularly to secure the old woman and his two children. I drew out a memorandum on paper of what his intentions were, and then made out the will ready for his signature. He was perfectly satisfied that it was according to his wishes. I read it to Mr. Daly, and he read it to himself. I said to him, This must be signed and attested as your last will and testament. I asked him who should witness it. He said, Quinn, who was here, and King, who are both neighbours, and have known my affairs many a day. They were then both called in. Daly said to them, I want you to witness a will I have made to secure the old woman and the children. Quinn then asked him, What have you done with the last will? I witnessed of yours with henry boyle to the best of my recollection daly said i don't know whether it was lost or stolen with my other papers i told him i ought to have a copy of that will he desired me to do so and keep it he then executed the will i made a copy of it and then daly said i shall place this in my friend mr simpson's hands for fear that any accident may befall me or i may be shortly taken off the copy was compared by Quinn, King and myself. I think Quinn compared it by taking it into his hand. Both copy and original were lying on the table at the same time. I should know the copy again. Daly told me shortly after that he had placed the original in Mr. Simpson's hands. This is a true copy of the original that Daly signed. My own Quinn's and King's signatures are to it. The original had a seal to it. I swear this is a true copy. I signed Daly's name in the copy. It was executed on the 7th of November, 1834, to the best of my recollection. Mr. Simpson died in 1832. I've never heard of Daly having executed any other will since. I had the copy in my possession and produced it for the first time, I think June or July, 1834. This witness underwent a most rigid cross-examination from the Attorney General, who conducted it with a strain of irony that kept the court in continual laughter. The learned gentleman sarcastically alluded to the very excellent character the witness had received from Mr. Stephen. Nothing, however, was elicited to induce him to alter his evidence. Timothy Quinn co his friend Mr. Joseph Bon Clark's evidence as to the making of the will, except in the important fact that instead of Mr. J. Clark signing the copy, Mr. Daly did so himself. Charles King confirmed the statement of the last witness. William Phillips was sworn. But being drunk, his evidence was not taken, and he was ordered out of the court. Mr. David Williams, Sworn I often heard Timothy Daly say he would make his will and leave his property to his children and Mrs. Murphy. He had been hurt by a cart, and a few days afterwards he told me he had got his will made by Peter Fowler. This was about nine or ten years ago. About five or six years since I heard him speak of another will. He said he had made a fresh one and had made over a farm at Highmount to his daughter and another to his son after Mrs. Murphy's death. He said his will was done by Clark. Daly often went to Mr. Simpson's. Mr. W. T. Stoker and Lewis W. Gillies, Esquire, were examined, but their evidence was of no importance to the case. The Attorney General suggested to the jury that the whole circumstances detailed in evidence as to the making of the will are highly improbable. He had no doubt that this was the intention of the deceased to dispose of the property in the manner stated. Indeed, it was very probable that he did actually execute this very will, which is now brought forward as a copy of the original will. The discrepancy in the evidence of Joseph Bon Clark, who swears that he signed Daly's name, and that of the other two witnesses, who attest Quinn and King, who both swear that Daly signed his own name to the copy, contradictory as that evidence is, and unsupported by other proof, and considering the character of the witnesses, it would be setting up a bad precedent where the jury in this case by returning a verdict for the plaintiff to countenance what might be of endless injury to the community at large. The trial lasted so late, 10 o'clock at night, that we are unable to do justice to the whole of the Attorney General's remarks. The verdict went for the defendant, few of her literacy problems, it isn't surprising that it wasn't resolved in her favour. On the 12th of April, 1838, in the Launceston Advertiser, there's a court case, Lawrence versus Murphy. This was an action of ejectment, brought to recover possession of a cottage and land in the occupation of the defendant situated on the Paterson's Plains Road. The property was purchased by the plaintiff of the late Timothy Daly in October 1833, And Daly died about a month afterwards. Several attempts have in vain been made to get the defendant out of the house. The defendant was called to confess entry, lease and ouster but did not appear and the plaintiff was non-suited. The neglect of the defendant to appear entitles plaintiff to a writ of possession as if judgment had gone by default. Hannah incurred the legal costs of this So because she didn't arrive at court that day, the judgment went automatically in favour to Lawrence, the owner. On the 16th of March 1839, in the Cornwall Chronicle, Launceston, there is an article titled Unparalleled. Some weeks back we reported the arrest of a very aged female and her incarceration in jail for a debt, some £30 in amount for law costs at the suit of Mr. John Ward Gledo. This poor old woman is in jail still, and is very likely taking into consideration the merciful disposition of her creditor to end her days there. Within the past day or two, some circumstances have come to light, which if they may be reported to us, are likely to cause the jail doors to be opened to this poor old woman of between 60 and 70 years of age. The land purchased by Mr. Lawrence of Timothy Daly which this woman occupied, and for which the law costs were incurred to eject her, we learn was never the property of Timothy Daly, but of this old woman, and her only, being a gift from the Crown to her, and which she never sold, or in any wise alienated. If this be the case, we think Mr. Gledo will regret having put the poor old decrepit female into a dungeon for a paltry bill for law costs. We are at a loss to imagine how Mr. Gledo acquits his conscience of this act. He professes to be very religious. Is such an act justified by his religion? Can Mr. Gledo find a precedent for his act in the scriptures? Can he find upon record in any country the circumstance of an almost bedridden old woman, bordering on seventy years of age, the mother of a very large family, having been incarcerated in an unwholesome dungeon for a paltry debt for law costs? The veriest pettifogger in England would not have hazarded such a deed. Poor old woman. Your days already drawing to a close will be shortened. You will soon be numbered with the dead and be freed from prison. The mercy which the lawyer denied you will not be refused you by your maker. He will avenge the cause of the oppressed. So there was somebody that was very much in uh, support of Hannah. Interesting though that Hannah was going with the line that it was her property only, but... It's saying in that court case there was evidence that Timothy Daly never owned the land. So interesting what was said in that article. Hannah must have survived jail and she must have been released because she emigrated to New Tears in South Australia with her son Michael and his family in 1847 when she was 74. She again moved with Michael and his family when they went to Woodford in Victoria near Warrnambool in 1853 And this is where her son Dennis Daly had moved in around 1847. She died on the 1st of June 1857 at the age of 84 in Woodford, Victoria, and is buried at the Mournable Cemetery. Family members placed a headstone on her grave on the 26th of April 1997 during a family reunion, as her grave was unmarked. Hannah has many descendants today, as she ended up having a total of 49 grandchildren. Hannah's children, what became of them? Well, Eleanor, the eldest, also known as Ellen, married Charles Lucas on the 27th of January, 1820, at St. John's in Launceston, aged 17 years. One of the witnesses on the marriage certificate was Timothy Daly, Hannah's partner. Charles's parents were also convicts, Charles was born on Norfolk Island in 1801 and he was the 10th child of First Fleeters. After Charles's father died, the Lucas family moved to Port Dalrymple on September 1818 on the schooner John Palmer and that's obviously where he has met young Eleanor. Charles was a wheat farmer as a young man in Launceston. They lived in Launceston until 1834 Ten children were born to them during these years, but one James lived only nine days. In 1834, a boat he reputedly built himself, Charles set off for Sydney with a cargo of wheat. The schooner ran aground at Twofold Bay and had to be abandoned. Crew and passengers eventually reached Sydney after gruelling over a land trip of about 300 miles. It is not clear whether Charles took the whole family with him on this voyage or whether he sent for them later, but from 1836, Eleanor Lucas and their growing family lived in the Queenbean district of New South Wales. In November 1845, the family, by now, including six sons and eight daughters, set off in a party of 21 for the greener pastures of Gippsland. They took with them three drayloads of provisions, and after a journey of four months, arrived at what is known today as Bansdale. Charles Lucas carted wool from here to Port Albert a difficult undertaking to say the least. At the ford on the Latrobe River, about half a mile below the present swing bridge at Sale, the bales had to be unloaded. The bullock swam across and the dray finally pulled through. The boggy nature of the riverbank caused the dray to sink after it had been reloaded on the other side and crossing this morass involved unloading and rolling the bales, pulling out the dray and reloading yet again. Having only a permit to occupy Crown lands issued by the Police Magistrate in Queanbeyan, Charles returned to find that Archibald MacLeod had applied for and received the title to the land which Lucas occupied on the Mitchell River. MacLeod named this run Burnersdale, later spelt Bansdale. The Lucas family moved on to another run which they named Cascade after Cascade on Norfolk Island where Charles and several of his brothers and sisters had been born. They lost many head of cattle here in attacks by Aborigines and, becoming disheartened, sold out to Bodman, who renamed the property Trenton Valley. From here, in October 1845, Charles Lucas moved to Woodside and had another property called Cascade. At this time, he must have been querying the wisdom of the move from New South Wales. However, things improved and he later bought out Bunteen from a run higher up on Bruthen Creek and subsequently also occupied lowlands on Lake Wellington. In 1856, Lowlands is recorded as being stocked with six horses, 300 cattle and 5,000 sheep. Undoubtedly, Charles was assisted at different times on his various properties by several of his sons. In 1852, an action against William O'Rourke, John Lucas is recorded as being in charge of Cascade with his father Charles. Eleanor died at Tarreville, Victoria, near Woodside, on the 15th of July 1881, aged 78, and Eleanor and Charles, in the end, had a whopping 16 children. Elizabeth, in December 1818, Elizabeth, aged only 14 years, married Alexander Mackenzie, a Scot, who was 46 years old, who had arrived from Sydney in 1810 with the 73rd Regiment. Mackenzie had formed an association with a convict named Anne Clark, and it appears to have father at least one of her two children. At the end of his army service, he moved to Tasmania and took up a land grant and married the much younger Elizabeth. However, shortly after they married, Clark arrived in Tasmania with her children and took up residence with Mackenzie, forcing his wife Elizabeth to return to her family. Fortunately for Elizabeth and her descendants, Mackenzie died in December 1819, leaving Elizabeth officially a widow at the age of 15. In 1822, now aged 18, she embarked on her second marriage, this time to John Porter, a 19 year old settler and the third son of Sam Porter and Mary Giles, both of whom had been transported to Sydney. John and Elizabeth were married on the 4th of February 1822 at Georgetown, Tasmania. Charles Lucas, the husband of Elizabeth's sister Eleanor, was witness to the marriage. John, Elizabeth, and Charles all signed with an X as they were all illiterate. On the 24th of June, 1836, just short of his 34th birthday, John Porter died, leaving Elizabeth with seven children and a widow for the second time at the age of 32. Ten months later, Elizabeth married for the third time to William Hughes, whose occupation was given as a splitter. Nothing more is known about Hughes except that he probably moved to South Australia with Elizabeth as a timber worker in the Mount Lofty Ranges. By January 1851, Elizabeth is also known to have been in South Australia where she was living in Alberton, a present-day Adelaide suburb, and was the informant at the birth of her granddaughter. On June 18, 1854, Elizabeth died. She was only 50 years of age and the cause of her death was consumption, which in other words was tuberculosis. She was buried four days later in the Albertan Cemetery, which no longer exists. There's not much known on the third child, Mary. I do know that she married John Tuckfield on the 27th of March, 1826 at New Norfolk in Tasmania when she was 20 and her husband died only four years after their marriage. I'm unable to find any official records of death or any other records of children for Mary. Hannah's fourth child to Michael Murphy was Jane. Jane married Theophilus Futrell on Christmas Day 1826 at St John's in Launceston. In 1837 and 1839, they're on shipping records showing that the family visited more than once from South Australia to Launceston and back. Jane and Theophilus had seven children and Jane died on the 4th of October 1857 at Launceston, Tasmania. The fourth child, Michael, married Sarah Elizabeth Baker on the 22nd of June 1836 in Launceston. As mentioned, his mother accompanied him and his family to South Australia and Victoria. They had 12 children. Michael died on the 16th of March 1889 at Dipton, New Zealand, aged 77. His daughter, Jessie, had moved there in 1881 and uh, he must have gone over there to live with her as an older man. Their fifth child, Maria, married Samuel Futrell, who was the brother of the Oliphus Futrell, on the 21st of June, 1830, in Launceston, Tasmania. They had a daughter, Amelia, in 1834. Maria died on the 22nd of September, 1834. And the independent Launceston newspaper states, We regret to learn the southern death of Mrs. Samuel Futrell of York Street at the age of 22 years, leaving a disconsolate husband and infant daughter to lament her premature departure. Unfortunately for Samuel, their daughter Amelia died of rheumatic fever on the 4th of July 1855 in Launceston when she was only 20. And the two children Hannah had with Timothy Daly. The firstborn was Anne. She married Philip Davis, who was a livery stable keeper in Launceston on the 31st of August 1837, age 19. Her husband died nearly three years after they married and Anne herself died of a stroke only aged 22 on the 10th of September 1839 in Launceston. Dennis, he moved to Woodford, Victoria by the time he was 27 and farmed there. He married Mary-Anne Moncrief Mailer, the daughter of a prosperous landowner of the district who Mailer's flat is named after and on the 9th of February 1847 they married at Port Ferry, Victoria which was then known as Belfast. They had three children, Susan, Robert and Jane, and my husband descends from Susan. Dennis died on the 30th of January, 1852 at his farm at Grassmere near Woodford, and an inquest was held as he was only 32 years of age. And I'll just read you the inquest. The inquest on the body of Dennis Daly, visitation of God, Belfast, Inquest, 1st of February, 1852. In an inquest here by Andrew W. Hume, M.D. Coroner at Daly's Farm, on the body of Dennis Daly, 1st of February, 1852, Thomas Edwards, being duly sworn in, states, I am a labourer. I was living with the deceased Dennis Daly. I believe he has complained of sightings for between a month and six weeks. I was reaping on Friday late with the deceased. Every time we stopped reaping, he complained of pain up his left breast and onto his shoulder. He said he should go in the next day to Port Ferry to see a doctor. I was in bed a few minutes on Friday night when Mrs. Daly called me. I went to her room. Daly was lying on his face. I caught him in my arms and held him up in bed. I told Mrs. Daly to light a candle. I got cold water and a towel and covered his face and chest with a wet cloth. I called to him several times, but I could get no answer. I sent my wife for W. Dory, a next door neighbor. I should say that Daly did not live about five minutes after. I took him up in his bed. There was not time to send for a medical man or even the nearest neighbor. I went without delay to Mr. Manifold and asked him to walk up as Dennis Daly had suddenly died. Mr. Manifold came with me and after he had seen the body told us to send word to Dr. Hume, We went on horseback and reported the matter to Dr Hume, sworn by me, Thomas G. Edward, this day, 1st of February, 1851. And Mary Daly also put a report in for the inquest, Colony Victoria, District of Belfast. Mary Daly, wife of Dennis Daly, being duly sworn states, my husband had been in a bad state of health for the past three months. He complained of pain about his heart. On Friday last, he was reaping and did not complain. He came into the house about sundown as usual. He went to his bed almost directly after. He had not drunk any spirit. Went to bed half an hour after him. I had not been in bed above two minutes when I heard my husband make a sort of snoring noise. I spoke to him, but he did not answer. I then called to a man who was in the house of the name of Thomas Edwards. Edwards came and lifted my husband up in his bed. I got up and I lighted a candle. While I was lighting a candle, Edward called to his wife to bring cold water and a cloth. When I brought in the candle, my husband appeared dying. He never spoke. I think he died five minutes after. Mary Daly. Swan before me at Daly's Farm. First day of February, 1852, M. Hume, coroner. So that tells the very interesting story of Hannah Williams and the situation that women found themselves in, that when their husbands deserted them, which effectively is what Michael Murphy did, it became very difficult, particularly if she couldn't track him down, with no divorce occurring, she really had no choice. If she wanted to continue a relationship with somebody else and have children by them, she effectively lost her rights because she wasn't married to Timothy Daly. If she'd married Timothy Daly, she would not have had to have gone to court to try and contest a will that in today's day and age with the law with de facto relationships, she certainly wouldn't have had to have gone to court to fight that. So I hope you've enjoyed my tale of Hannah Williams.